Welcome to episode 357 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Are you back to hosting in-person events? Have your participants been saying, we want more networking? I'm not surprised. According to a study by the International Association of Exhibitions and Events, networking ranks as the third most important driver to attend an event. Are you responding by adding more breaks and a longer reception? Unfortunately, open format networking is advantageous for only a small percentage of your participants, outgoing extroverts like me. At best, it feels vibrant, but more likely the space feels chaotic and overwhelming, especially for those first or second timers or participants who are shy and or introverted. Depending on when we met, you may have no idea that I've been recognized by many as a networking expert. For over a decade before the pandemic, I work with participants to improve their networking outcomes at events. And when I say events, I mean in-person events, which didn't need that descriptor pre-2020. I've presented a talk about networking hundreds of times, wrote a book about networking at conferences, did a TEDx talk on this topic, and was interviewed by NPR, HBR, and the Professional Convention Management Association. Are you hosting an in-person event? I've got lots of strategies to share. As an event design consultant, I'd be happy to meet with you to debrief a recent event or help you strategize for an upcoming event. Whether your event is in person, virtual, or uh, attempting to please everyone by doing hybrid, I can help. Email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com and we can schedule a complimentary 30-minute strategy session. My expertise and competency goes well beyond events to marketing, sales, designing launches, project management, session design, training speakers, and much more. Working with me means getting all of my brain and access to my network. Reach out if you're feeling stuck about how to go forward, stressed about meeting your goals, or overwhelmed by technology. Email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com to start a conversation. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest is a communication maestro. He's an influencer, author, and speaker who has carved out a niche in helping individuals and organizations succeed through effective communication. He started his entrepreneurial journey at 14, turning a weekend car wash gig into a thriving business where he made more money than his teachers by age 15. He's led sales teams, guided Premier League football clubs, and played a pivotal role in growing a real estate business to over $240 million in revenue. With a track record spanning 800 industries across 59 countries and five continents, his insights have transformed countless careers. Best known for his international bestseller, 
exactly what to say, the magic words for influence and impact, over a million copies sold. He has become a sought-after author, speaker, and advisor. He's on a mission to help people master the art of conversation, ask the right questions, and make every word count. His entrepreneurial success story includes founding five multi-million dollar companies, being the youngest ever winner of the British Excellence of Sales and Marketing Award, being inducted into the National Speakers Hall of Fame, and writing seven best-selling business books and one gorgeous children's book, The Magic of Words. Please join me in welcoming Phil M. Jones. Welcome, Phil. Hey, great to be here, Robbie. Thank you for having me on the show. Bill, you've been on my like list for a while, folks. I want to reach out to you. Thank you so much for joining us from your place in New York. Uh, as you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Oh, man. I mean, how do you define leadership? I think leadership is a responsibility, right? You're responsible either for a group of people or an outcome or a deliverable in some way, shape, or form. So leadership for me is is... is taking full, complete responsibility towards some form of collective predetermined outcome and then doing whatever it takes to be able to get there. And I think what it means to me is ever-evolving. I can't say that I have a concise, here is the picture-perfect definition of what leadership means to me. I think it means continued reinvention. I think it means remaining open. I think it means that innovation is something that is essential for us to be able to keep absorbing new data. But the most important thing to succeed as a leader in my mind is to remain curious, Mm -hmm. is to be curious enough to understand what it is that's really going on before you jump to conclusions, to be curious enough to understand, is there an alternative way before that you do things the way that you've always done them in the past, to be curious enough to say, have you got the right people in the right places, to be curious enough to say, are our competition really worse than us or are they better than us? It's, it's remaining curious, which I think allows us to keep evolving as leaders, keep growing as leaders. So I heard responsibility, uh, innovation, remaining open and curious. Mm -hmm. Uh, How have these themes showed up in your life? When did you start to realize you had some of these skills and attributions? I I think leadership has always shown up even in the very early years of my life, right? Is entrepreneurial journey from 14 years of age. But prior to that, I was leading sports teams in school groups is I was often the individual that if there were seven of us being asked to do something and nobody could actually decide what needed to be happen is is I would be the ringleader of that group of hooligans in order to be able to actually create some direction, create some change. And I think I was aware of the fact that I was open to take responsibility for organization, planning, and getting stuff done from probably 8, 9, 10, 11 years of age. And I wasn't that bossy person. I was the one that would sit back and see that nobody else was actually going to take responsibility for leadership and go, all right, got this. I'll take this because what we're looking to achieve matters. Whether that was how are we going to get to you know, 11 people to be able to play a game of soccer at the weekend or whether that was we're going on an expedition on a giant hike and we're, you know, we're covering 20 miles and where are we going to decide to stop and how are we going to be able to pace and plan the expedition is... Um, I was always the one that would naturally step into a leadership position, but not the one that would naturally step in first, which I think is an interesting thing that I'm aware of myself is I'm quite happy to let other people lead, 
but I'm also a, an individual that will take the responsibility of a leader if nobody else feels strongly about it. I'm glad you went back that far because I really am always curious what people were like on the playground those early years. It sounds like you were the person who, if no one else stepped up, would would take, like you said, that responsibility to make sure the group had a defined vision and then executed on that vision together. You know, whether it's whether it was organizing a hike or getting eleven kids together for a game. Um, I share some of that. Like I was very entrepreneurial as a kid, um, selling things in high school. I don't think I ever got to quite what you had. Um, it sounds amazing. Like I'm, I'm sort of curious, where did that an entrepreneurial bug come from for you? Like, do, were you surrounded by people who are entrepreneurial? Um, like who helped you realize you could actually turn this weekend gig, you know, into an empire at a young age? Like where, where does that idea come from? I don't think it comes from any one individual. What I definitely got for sure from a very early age was was hard work ethic from my dad. And if we go way, way back is I think there was a point in time where I was like 13 years of age and I wanted a new pair of sneakers. So I did the thing that most 13 year olds would do is I went and asked my parents for the money. And, and the first answer that came back was you don't need those. We're not giving you money for that. And it wasn't I didn't have sneakers. It was a particular pair of sneakers that were obnoxiously priced. And um, yeah, they were around like, like 80 pounds or something at the time. Then what happened is my good friend, a guy called Paul at the time, was traveling to the US. And at the time, the, the US currency to pound was insanely favorable to the fact that if you had pounds, your money went twice as far. So the same trainers or sneakers that I wanted were like half price in the US. So I went to my dad and I said, well, um, can I have the money for the sneakers? Because Paul can get them for me for a lot less. And he said, no, but you can come to work with me. And my dad was a self-employed or still is a self-employed contractor, runs independent building projects and extensions and loft conversions, et cetera. And um, I went to work with my dad. But I remember before I agreed to go to work with my dad, I asked him how much he was going to pay me. And what he said, which is still one of the smartest things that anybody said back to me, he said, I'll pay you what you're worth. Now, I didn't understand that at the time. But when I arrived to my first day at work with my father is um, he had been up on the roof the day before and it had, had stripped off a whole roof and it was in the backyard of this townhouse in, in London. And my job was to be able to take the contents of the roof and put it into a skip, which is what many of us here in the US would call a dumpster. And what I realized was is the pile of stuff was bigger than the hole in the skip. I said, well, dad, like, what do you need me to do? He said, well, if you fill the skip, then I'll pay you 20 pounds. Now, I needed 40 pounds to buy my sneakers. I said, well, if I fill the skip, then what happens? He said, well, I'll get Earl to come pick it up and we'll flip it, flip it out for another one. I thought, cool, okay. And what? And then I'll get 40 pounds. He's like, yeah, sure. So I got busy doing this. And by like 10, 11 o'clock, I'd filled it once. We flipped it out again, filled it again. Backyard is spotless. Now, this is only at around two o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm looking up at, the dad, at my dad and he's still doing clever stuff up on the roof. And saying what to do, what to do, what to do. And that says, well, if there's nothing else to do, go knock on the door of the homeowner and see if there's something you can help them with. So little me, knock, 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 anything I can help with. And they asked me to help clear out some things in the basement and move some boxes around inside the house. And I just got busy to work with that. Now, at the end of the day, what happened was, is I got an envelope with some cash in it from the homeowner. It had 45 pounds in it. I'm like, cha-ching, I'm up, right? I can get my trainers and I've got some little bonus spending money for some treats for me, for some soccer stickers or some candy or whatever else I might be thinking. 
when I finally got home and got shower changed and came back downstairs, my dad gave me an envelope. And in that envelope was the 40 pounds that he had promised me. What I realized was I'd been paid by the homeowner and I'd been paid by my dad what was promised. And I realized at 13 years of age that you don't get paid by the hour. You get paid by the value that you bring to the hour. That was one of the greatest lessons that came to me in those early days. <clears throat> and, and it made me start to realize, well, hold on. What can you start to achieve if you just put yourself out and you start gifting yourself out ahead of time? You start making yourself of service to others. And that's where the car washing business started. Because what I did is I gave Paul the money for the sneakers and got those. I took the leftover money and I went to the hardware store. I bought a bucket, a sponge, a chamois lever, and just started knocking on doors. Um, and realized that you could start to take success into your own hands. What's been interesting that stayed with me from that journey is the only way I've learned to get better at things, because I have no right to do what I do now, right? I'm I'm looking at Central Park out my window. I you know, live in a beautiful home in an area that I, I had no right to be able to grow up in. And you know, we do okay. But I've never, ever been in awe of anybody who's more successful than me in any area of life. Never. And anytime I've seen anybody that's been better at anything than me in life, I've never said, wow. What I've done is I've asked the question, how? And I've strategically gone out of my way to find people who are better at things than me in life, sit down, ask the question, how? And get insight after insight after insight. So my role models and mentors are like a Frankenstein's monster of about you know, 1,500 people. Because you keep asking how, not wow. Yeah. And you get insights and you take a piece, you leave a piece behind. You take a piece, you leave a piece behind. And, and, and what I've learned from remarkably successful people is they're quite happy to tell you everything. They don't hold anything back. There's no secrets. There's no, well, you got to wait till you pay me before I tell you the answer. They're quite happy to share as much as you're willing to ask and show interest, which is back to the point I made earlier is, I genuinely believe that curiosity, genuine strategic curiosity is a superpower. Yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing a little bit of the origin story of, of the mindset shift that you had, um, that your dad helped you think about that wasn't just like, I'm gonna pay you $5 an hour and then you work at whatever pace you want. It was really like, well, when you achieve this thing, when you provide the value, mm -hmm. and oh, you're done, we'll see what else you can do to provide right. value. Like, don't just go home. like. And you didn't know going into that house to run around and help out with boxes that you were going to get paid anything extra per se. They didn't strike a deal. You just did the work and they paid you what they thought you were worth. Yeah. I mean, uh, how do you translate that into what you wanted to be when you grew up at that age? Like, did you have a sense even then of like a future plan was, you know, were you following your dad's footsteps? Was there... Was college a definite or university a definite? Like, how did you think of the future when you were? So I, I didn't go, I didn't go to college. Um, and I did want to grow as a leader. I did want to be entrepreneurial. I did enjoy the sales focus of things. And I did want to garner an education. So I joined a leadership training development program at 18 years of age after building a number of small businesses with one of the largest department store retail groups in the UK. So I joined, in fact, their grad program alongside a number of other graduates, being the only non-graduate. And being in a formal leadership development program with a, with a fantastic company was, was really, really great grounding. But what also happened through that is I got some you know, formal, structured, professional training, but also got a lot of hands-on experience real quickly. And we were running stores, stores with 100 people and turnovers of 12 million pounds. 
And, and what's interesting in being in a leadership position in those environments at 18 years of age is you don't know what you don't know. So when it comes to being able to get results, you're quite happy to follow the playbook. You're quite happy to be able to look to the advice and guidance of your elders. And very much my early leadership style was created in those environments. And, and, and I was 18, 19, 20 years of age, but I, I, I looked a lot younger than that too. So faced a lot of prejudice, faced a lot of pushback in terms of competence based on looking like, you know, a baby faced kid. So that was my, my sort of early years. And, and I was nationally mobile, geographically mobile. So I went through 13 different department stores around the UK, opening stores, recruiting new teams, getting people focused on, on being able to be their best selves at the point of revealing a big new flagship store. So you think like a Macy's or something going into a, a big retail hub. Um, you learn a lot fast. What's magic though, because I would go from store to store to store to store to store, the gift becomes in reinvention. Because what you can do is every time you show up in a new store environment with new people in a new leadership role, you bring everything that you've learned and everything you wanted to be better and you leave behind the bad habits. And then you play again and you play again. See, most people get to do this three, five, seven years in their entire career, three, five, seven times in their entire career. I got to do it 13 times in five years. I'm curious how you even got that opportunity at 18 years old, given, uh, I mean, your, your level of experience at that time and, and how you appear and all that. I mean, between ages of 15 and 18, it sounds like a lot happens. Uh, what led you to decide, I'm not going to go to university, I'm going to you know, focus on this opportunity and who introduced you to that opportunity? Was there like a networking aspect at that age? Um, um, so who introduced me to the opportunity? Nobody specific is I was the only or one of like two or three kids in my school group that didn't go on to university, went to a, you know, a very academic, strongly academic high school, um, did okay through that, but I viewed my exams as quizzes and puzzles. That was just my mindset. And I knew that I wanted to go to work in the field. I had a great offer for a great university. I just didn't want to go. So I figured that my path to not being able to go was to get into one of these structured leadership development programs. How do you so, even know what that was? Like, um, <laughs> that's like not like everyday conversation at, you know, 17 years old. I didn't know I couldn't. I thought about the places, I visualized about places I'd like to work and then, you know, made some calls and I think what you just said, I didn't know I couldn't is actually a key aspect there, right? Because right. at, <laughs> at that More age, you weren't assuming closed doors. You were like, well, all right, I'm just gonna I, I got selected early days as well to be part of a really brilliant nonprofit leadership development program called the Fulcrum Challenge that still runs today where you know, three, four, five kids in, in each school are nominated to go towards this experience. And there's a community service element to it. We went on a expedition to India and we helped build a school. And one of the folks that, that, that came on that trip with us, we might have been 15, 16, 17 years of age, was a senior store manager, an exec at a company called Marks and Spencers that was a... Um, a big premium retailer in the UK at the time and very highly regarded. Like a career at MS would be seen in many ways like a career at Google or Meta or et cetera today. It would be a prestigious resume point. 
And this guy, Richard, was um, on the trip with us. And I, I learned a little more about his career, asking him about it whilst we spent three and a half weeks backpacking across um, across India. But what was also interesting is, which I think helped me get, get through um, the assessment center, is what I asked for on that trip was some work experience. So I asked if I could go in and shadow, and I got to shadow him in his role for, I think it was a week or 10 days, and you know, I got a little suit on and got myself on a bus or a train or whatever it was to get across to, to Watford, I think it was at the time, um, and, and spent some time shadowing him in that role. So I had you know, the tenacity of my own businesses. I had this experience of the fact that I'd shadowed a senior exec at what was one of the biggest competitors to the department store group that I ended up working with. Um, that was helpful. And it just came from asking for it. And you saw him also as an example that it was possible. Because oh, sure. he was another young person who had taken charge he, of his own life. I don't even know that that's how I would have seen him. He was just somebody that was doing a job. Because you know, at the time, he must have been you know, mid-40s, etc. At that mm. point, I didn't see him as a, uh, yeah. as a young upstart. But I, I was reading books from a pretty young age as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, I remember putting on my... You know, my holiday wish list when I was 14, 15, 16 was books from the likes of Richard Branson. I was listening to Jim Rowan tapes and CDs and Zig Ziglar tapes and CDs. Um, yeah, 16, 17, 18, 19 years I have to tell you, Phil, it's actually kind of a relief to know you've always been you and that like the success you have today is because you've had this like desire to learn. You have been open to new experiences. You know how to ask. Uh, as you said, strategic curiosity, like those kinds of questions, you seek out an opportunity and don't assume a no. And that's kind of been part of you for a very early age. Mm-hmm. Um, so then going forward, you know, how did you carve this into a career? Like, where did you start to uh, make, this, like, were you working inside companies for a while? And then at some point you decided to shift to your own? Like, how long were you clocking um, in versus how long have you been on your own? So... I give the potted history is is we did all the department store retail stuff. I then hit a bit of a glass ceiling where the only way I could get the next job is if um, the person above me left or died and the dude was in great shape. So so um, realizing it was time for a change is um, I had a knock on the door from a another big retail company where they were looking for somebody to help turn around broken stores. This was more of a direct sales environment rather than a retail environment where you were managing people. And what I was doing was managing commission-hungry sales folks in a furniture retail environment, high pressure, high conversion rates, et cetera. So that sounded exciting. The financial opportunity was about double what I was currently earning, seemed like a good chance, move 100 miles north. And um, yeah, it came at a good time. So I did some time with those guys turning around broken stores. We, In that environment, I got the chance to be able to really build upon my love and bug for training. Like I had some of the most fantastic training experiences through what I'd done at Debenhams. When I'm then working with DFS, I found myself in training and consulting roles alongside the existing training group. And I went through a fantastic onboarding experience with the guy that brought Dale Carnegie training to the UK. So I learned a lot about Dale Carnegie core principles, found myself then um, needing to coach individuals to have a completely different reframe as to how they'd go about selling things because the old culture of hustle and push and drive would not get me the levels of conversion that I was looking for. I was looking for 95% conversion rates, 97%, not 60% conversion to scale. 
So we'd slow the process down. And my management style became um, like leadership by walking about. So just being present, just people seeing me. It also came from a, if I needed to get the respect, bear in mind in this role, I was 23, 24, 25, 26. They didn't hire salespeople under the age of 25. I was leading them at 23. You again, didn't get a great deal of respect. So my early stage was I got to get really good at the job I'm asking them to do so I can show them. So I, in that early stage, took almost like a player manager role and went, I'm just going to go out and, and set the bar of what obnoxious results look like and then use that as a benchmark to be able to manage to. So that became my leadership style there. And, and because I was almost like a very universal player in that business, in that I could play a number of roles, was the kind of person that would just say yes to things, was the kind of person that wasn't afraid to be able to take on a big challenge, is our um, sort of divisional vice president, our head of sales in that company, used me a lot to be able to go fix problems. So, you know, long-term sickness, somebody needs to move. Like, I, I'd be geographically mobile, six weeks here, 10 weeks here, 12 weeks there, but really caught the bug for training. Um and started to write many of the training processes and principles still used in that business today. The challenge I had in that environment is I was working so freaking hard. So every Saturday, every sub Sunday, every public holiday, 14 days straight following Christmas, I really wasn't seeing any of the people that I cared about. It, it, it you know, cost me a number of, of really important relationships, meant that in my early days is I got to know a lot of people, but I didn't have many friends because everything was dropping around. So I don't have like the group of college buddies or the high school friends or the people I hang out with, right? All right. It's my twenties because everything was changed. Um, from there, I became head of retail commercial director, at one of the premier league soccer clubs. And that was an interesting challenge again, right now we're dealing with licensing revenue, retail stores, the buying side, the creative side of product creation. Did someone seek you out for that role or did yeah, you seek that role out? That was a, um, a headhunter. And I completed a project there for a period of time. And the world of football is, is funky as, as particularly, you know, leadership changes, new money comes in, old money comes out, et cetera, as people bring their own people. So I realized pretty quickly, I didn't love that industry too much, but I went from there and did another consultancy role where I first got my flavor of like, what does it feel like to be a short-term project consultant with another soccer club? And I got paid about a year's worth of money to do three months worth of work, which was a really interesting exercise. And then I got selected by one of my former clients in the football world who was starting to scale an overseas property business, looking to build a sales team. So he brought me into the business. We partnered. I then scaled out a small sales team of five. And that's where we turned over 240 million at our peak. Brings us through to about 2008. And we had a great product on a Monday. And by the Friday, we had a product we couldn't give away. So right. as the markets moved against us, we went from a you know, 2.7% Swiss franc lending mortgage with 80-20 um, borrowing with um, self-certification for self-employed people with huge inbuilt equity in the properties we were selling. By Friday, we had 50-50 lending, full disclosure mortgages, 9% borrowing in the euros, no inbuilt equity in the properties. So it was like it was game over. We bought that business down, um, getting everybody who was involved to a point of a finish line. But by the time we'd bought that business down, there was no money left. 
So it was, you know, enough to go and get a round of drinks for me and my business partner. Um, while I was figuring out what I wanted to do next, because I'd built a lot of that business through professional networking, so BNI groups, Chamber of Commerce, um, other associated independent groups across the country, is I would run trainings in those events. I'd be quite well known in those events. And what those groups were asking through recessionary times is, hey, Phil, would you come in and share some ideas with our members about how they could trade out of a recession? That's what I started doing in 2008, just for fun, while I figured out what I wanted to do next. So I did a you know, 30 minute presentations here and there and people were like, have you got more? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. And I designed my first one day sales training program. What happened was, is I said, I got a one day sales training. I set the date and I booked a venue and it was 12 people. It was 85 pounds a head. And I'd be talking to people about it and they'd say, will it cover blank? I said, sure. <laughs> and I'd write it down <laughs> and I'd keep asking those questions and they keep asking them to me. And then I took the list of all the will it cover blanks. And the night before me running my first one day sales training workshop, I wrote it based on their will it cover blanks. And I delivered that one day sales training workshop uh, three times a month for a period of 18 months. I'd put 12 people in a room. And of those 12, two or three would step up to be one on one coaching clients. One occasionally would be a bigger business that I'd be able to win some consulting opportunities with. I'd then speak anywhere I possibly could in order to be able to fill the one-day workshop to build the coaching business. And um, was really, again, doing that while I figured out what I wanted to do next. And what's interesting now is that one-day sales training workshop is very much the essence of what now lives in my one-man show of How to Persuade and Get Paid that I produced off-Broadway in partnership with Audible. But that started as that small one-day workshop that now has been downloaded by over 150,000 people and I recorded live off-Broadway which um, with, a, with a live audience. So that, that, that's really where that started. And my business has organically grown from there. I want to just jump in here and, and make sure to, to underscore something you did that probably saved you a ton of time and led to better results. You didn't build a one-day workshop based on what you thought people wanted to hear yeah you remained open and curious and kept asking and like letting people share well you know what they wanted to cover and then literally designed based on that initial group of 12 and probably adapted as you went even further going well forward. and i give you some of the strategy about adapting as everyone because we, no two were the same mm -hmm. is from the very first workshop at the end people would be invited to complete feedback forms and not feedback forms like a traditional feedback forms, like, what do you think? Tell me I was awesome, rate me five stars. But feedback forms that actually provided meaningful feedback. In a four-day program, I had firstly asked people, what are the six biggest takeaways that they're going to commit to do, that they're going to follow through on, that they're going to take action on? I want them to write them down word for word. I'd give them time to be able to do this. I'd ask them to share with me who would be one person that missed out from not being here. Is during the day, who were you thinking was somebody that would have really liked this, really benefited this? And I'd ask them to write their name. I'd give them a tick box of other things that they may be interested in. So it would be things like I'm, you know, I'm interested in learning more from you on your on your, you know, newsletter on a drip campaign. I'm keen to be able to elevate and move my business success towards the next level. And I tell them what that meant was they're going to receive a call from me to learn more about what one-on-one -on -one coaching and consulting would be. And that would be scheduled, right? That would all be structured. And I'd then leave space for them to share a positive comment that they wouldn't mind use us using in their marketing. So take the time to craft something that we're going to attribute towards their name. 
they'd write that. And then I'd ask them if there was one thing they could change about the event experience, what would that be? And I've, I've got them. I've got them. They're saved, scanned in my Dropbox from 2008 for every workshop we've ever done. That would be a ton. <laughs> it's so fun to go back and people are like, you've still got that in Dropbox? Like we were scanning and putting those into Dropbox before people even knew that Dropbox was a thing. <laughs> and I would also do this. Anytime I had an unsold seat, I would invite a strategic guest. That strategic guest would be somebody I respected who I felt was ahead of me in this game. And I'd invite them to come as my guest under one condition that we could go for a drink afterwards go grab dinner afterwards. And what I wanted them to share with me was the answer to something really precise. I wanted them to share with me three things they really liked about the workshop experience and one thing they'd change. That was it. That was the only frame of feedback I was looking for from them. Mm -hmm. They'd come, they'd be my guests. I'll take him for dinner afterwards. And I would say every other event, I had somebody that I'd strategically put in the room to be able to help provide me their wisdom, their experience to be able to make it better. Where did you get the idea for that kind of feedback form? Like, is that part of the trainings you've experienced earlier in your life? I just knew that I needed to leave with something. I'm a strategic business developer. And that means the setting up of a never-ending conversation is often necessary if you'd like to better do business with people multiple times. One of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're trying to be able to grow the value of the customer is they create stop-start relationships. So what they will do is they'll be brilliant and then the whole thing will down, fizzle down to nothing. And then they have to do the just checking in call, the I'm uh, you know, circling back, thought I'd see how you're doing, because they didn't have permission to be able to stay in the conversation long term. I knew I'd get great feedback on the day. That was awesome. Thanks, Phil. Loved it. But I needed a reason to start the next conversation. Mm -hmm. That was the puzzle I was trying to solve that the feedback form was created for. So nobody told me to do it. I just knew that if I'm going to make this a commercially viable business, I need to be able to speak to these people again with enough space and frame about it for me to talk to them about big puzzles. So what I was actually doing is see the six things that they took away from the event. They were useful for me because they told me what my big guns were, right? They told me what you know the most important takeaways are, but they were also my leverage for the upsell because the conversation would start really simply is... You know, I'm calling as promised after it being scheduled. They'll be like, yes, you know, great, thank you. Um, I'd say I'm looking at your feedback form and it says that what you were looking to be able to do was this and this and this and this and this and this. Let's take the first one. How are you getting on? And what would we find? We'd find that they haven't managed to be able to implement. They haven't managed to be able to take the progress. They haven't managed to be able to work out the kinks and the details to be able to get this done. And that would create the opportunity to talk about further business support, further coaching, further consulting services to help them just do what they'd already decided was going to make a difference. But they had the reference of the training plus my credibility. It would mean our conversion rate of stepping into coaching was insanely high. I mean, anyone listening to this should rewind and replay all of this last part of the conversation because I feel like it's a missing step that so many entrepreneurs fail to, to include. And like you said, they end up with these start stop, not even sometimes it's not even start stop relationships. It's more constantly looking for new clients, right? Not even going back to the to their highest prospects being their current and recent uh, clients. And so for you to kind of have that and to use that in your follow up conversation, 
I mean, it, it's common sense and it's bloody brilliant, but it doesn't mean most people are commonly doing it. Um, what led to you writing a book? Like, how did that start to surface? Because that's, yeah. that's more of like thought leadership stuff. Like, when did that start to take uh, um, center stage? I really started to enjoy the speaking work. And um, historically, I would only speak to fill my workshops to be able to use it for lead gen. I didn't know that professional speaking was a thing other than the CDs and tapes that I'd listened to of the Jim Rowan likes, et cetera. So I, I, I'd hoped and dreamed that at one point in my future, the, like when I'm old and gray, when I'm at the end of my career, that what I might do is I might speak some wisdom into the world. So that had some ambition to it, but I didn't realize it would come so quickly. What was happening is I was speaking to Phil workshops what I was then struggling to be able to do was to get enough gigs to be able to speak to fill workshops. So I'd book myself. And that means that I started a host events. I did a 47 pound event called summit. I'd bring in a couple of other speakers to provide them platform and stage. And I'd put a hundred or so people in the room and I'd run a great, you know, networking event chance for people to be able to get together. And I'd make myself the third speaker in all of those events. So I'd start to get more and more exposure. Now people are bringing friends to networking events. Now those friends run real big companies, not small companies. And they're saying, hey, can we hire you to come and speak to our sales force, to come speak to our team, to come speak at our conference? I'm like, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. They're like, how much do you charge? I'm like, they pay people for that? What year is this? This is 2009, 2010. Um, and... You know, I think, you know, the first number was the first number that came out of my mouth. And, you know, I started to get excited about this whole speaking business career thing. And it seemed like a good way to be able to like, do something I love and make money and credibility. But then again, I hit a bit of a ceiling and realized that oh, I needed to start an international speaking business, not a speaking business in the UK, international speaking business. Now, if I'm going to be an international speaker, I need things in my bio that people can read out that have credibility. So my first book that I wrote was a book called Toolbox, which is I took everything I could possibly know about sales, crammed it into a book, self-published it, produced it on Lulu. And um, purely so that I could say, best-selling author of blank. Like we sold, I don't know, 1,800 copies. It went bestseller on Amazon. Most of those went out to a list. Guess what? I sold the book before I wrote the book. You know, we had 1,800 pre-orders from a cover that I shared on Facebook. And from going back to all of my workshop clients, but that became my passport to be able to go speak and start to be able to speak internationally. I strategically made myself open for business internationally. I was one of the first people in the UK to start putting plus four, four in front of my number so that people knew that I was open for business internationally. Tiny little steps that said, I'm open for business internationally. And what I strategically went looking for is any opportunity I could have to work with companies that had an international presence. What I strategically went after was any foreign obscure countries I could work in. 2011, I got to speak in Tehran, a sales and marketing conference. One of the biggest reasons I wanted to speak in Tehran is when people say, hey, it's different in this country culturally. I can say, yeah, I get it. There's difference in cultures. I've worked in countries in the past that have had differences in culture. They're like, countries like where? Expecting me to say Italy, France, Germany. I'm like, well, outside of doing Italy, France, Germany, Denmark, etc., I've also worked in the Middle East, in Dubai, Sharjah, and in Iran. 
Oh, and a number of things through Eastern Europe. So like Macedonia, Bosnia, and um, all the parts of former Yugoslavia. Oh, okay. You should be fine. They're like, we're working through translations. We've got one translator. It's a simultaneous interpretation. I'm like, well, how many languages are you interpreted in? Like people don't normally ask me that question. Setting my stall out ahead of time to the fact that I'm an experienced international speaker. Mm-hmm. Then when I'd win international gigs with corporate clients, when I'm in those areas, often they would be like a tour, right? So it would be three cities across a 10-day window alongside that client. Well, what I'd have is I'd have downtime in those other days. So I'd reach out to any other client that I had that had an international presence that said, I just so happen to be in your country and I'm free on these dates. What is it we might be able to do to be able to do something to train your people? And sometimes it's a lunch and learn. Sometimes it was a conference. Sometimes it was a chance just to drop into the office. But I built my business on winning the first business and then getting the piggyback business from just so happening to be in that environment. Um, and the big thing that then catapulted speaking career and moved it forward from there is one client I picked up in the hearing care industry that for three years worth of nurturing after they met me at a speech in a sales director live exhibition in London, um, booked me for a two day sales conference in Paris, all of their global leaders. And I ran a two day sales conference for all of the business focused global leaders for this company. Many of them loved what I was about. They said, hey, we want you to bring this back to our sales team. And then they went, ah, actually, if you bring it to our sales team, we'll get one result. If we bring you in to bring this direct towards our customer base, we'll get a different result. So that client put me on an 18-city tour of the US doing you know, full one-day events um, for groups of 40, 60, 80 of their What, what year is that? Eh, 11, 12. Wow. It'll happen. It feels like in a lot of ways it happened really fast. Did it feel fast at the time? It still feels fast now. It's never well, not felt fast. Phil, what was challenging about all this? Because it seems like, first of all, you, you're a brilliant thinker, right? You think strategically, you're willing to do the work, you know, you're, you're, you're creating all these conversations in the, the piggyback business. What part of building this business did you need other people's insights to help you make it oh, smooth? Always getting other people's insights. You know, I've, created mastermind groups forever of peers both aspirationally and at the same level like actually surrounding myself with people that are smart um in the speaking business making the commitment to join the national speakers association when i came across to the us even more so was particularly helpful peers from the professional speakers association finding people in other arenas that 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 had done great things had been helpful um where it's been hard is I always believe that you should be running two businesses. And by running, I mean that you should have the business you're running and the business you're growing at all times. And then what happens is sometimes the business you're growing becomes the business you're running, which means now you need to start growing another business. We're always doing this flip-flop piece. Now, that works well, but it does have some collateral damage. The collateral damage is, is as you're going through these permanent reinventions in your business and yourself and your own personal journey and growth, you outgrow some of the past relationships that were once wonderful relationships, that were once like the most important strategic partners that you had in your world are now all of a sudden no longer as valuable as they once were. So the hardest part of growing this business is the 
shedding of things is the creating enough space for you to be able to grow into the next version of self. Mm-hmm. That's been the hardest part of what you leave behind. And if I look at the you know, 15 years ago version of me to where I am today is I've evolved that many times that, that, that it's bordering on unrecognizable. Um, and that's been on purpose, but there's a sadness attached to that as well. That you don't often get too much time to think about because you, you, you out, it sounds mean to say that you've outgrown or that you've yeah. no longer found purpose for those relationships. But that, that's been the biggest challenge. People that I loved, adored, cared about, mm-hmm. and there just hasn't been the space to be able to keep that moving forward in life. And that's been the hardest part of growing this business. And you mentioned earlier just the the feeling of of being overwhelmed with work when you had the job that was nonstop yeah. at the furniture place. How have you structured your life now? Because I'll I'll say it like I'm <laughs> I own my own business, and sometimes I find myself doing you know things, and I'm like, if I were an employee, I'd be complaining to the boss. Oh you wait, bet. I'm the boss. Stop <laughs> doing this. Like, I have to remind myself that I have agency yeah. on what I what I do and how I spend my time. So how, how do you think about the growing of one business while running another business, while nurturing the relationships that you yeah. can and like having a life where you can actually enjoy New York and enjoy the travel and all that? I mean, everything's a transition. And we're like, we're, we're at a point right now is, is if I go back three years, I could have made a decision to say, I'm going to run a very, very comfortable, big, small lifestyle business, you know, outsourced. Uh, speaker business inquiries, logistics towards speaker management company. You've got brilliant EAs in place that are taking care of the logistics of most of my day to day, and the you know great publishing partner in page two that are taking care of the sustainability of of the book and those things moving forward. So I could speak and do podcasts and be able to you know hang out and 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 have a lot of fun um, with family, and that was that was a choice that I decided to not make, hmm. and decided to make the choice to say, well, what if we have a small, big business? What if we look to better create the space that says that I'm going to build something that's going to be big enough that's going to outgrow me? And what we've done is we've taken what was the little book, exactly what to say, and turned it into what it started to become by itself, which is a giant movement. And now I have 37 certified guides that are carrying the work out into the world of which I lead and shepherd. What we now have is inside our organization is... I'm looking to grow leaders as opposed to highly competent people of tasks. So we now have a head of people development that is responsible for supporting, creating, and growing our guides. We have a head of brand and head of marketing. We have a um, the relationship I have towards my speaker bureau, my speaker management company is is very much more strategically aligned with saying that I expect you to take more responsibility for that outcome. I'm making myself a product of your business. I'm not the business. Phil Jones, the speaker, is a product of your business. So shift your product, right? I'm not the business. I'm a product of yours. So lots more of this empowering to other people Mm -hmm. to better grow it. And what's fun about everything we're doing with exactly what to say is I now don't know how big it's going to grow, where it's going to go, what doors it's going to open, because it's not mine, it's now ours. So it's now responsible for helping field and fuel the dreams of our 37 certified guides. And, you know, just yesterday, one of our guides is like, 
I think I found a way that we can create a hybrid way of being able to train this into the financial services sector that includes you know, some on-site plus the development of this curriculum with scorecards and dashboards and the ability for us to be able to you know, check that people have got the right levels of competence. And I've built it out on this cool little software tool. And what do you think? I'm like, go get it. Go get it. Get after it. And what's happening now is that the business and the brand is going further than I could have got it on my own. And that is now insanely exciting through empowering other people to go and lead their journey and trying to step more into a role of not being all of the details, all of the dotting the I's, dotting all the T, crossing the T's, but being the visionary, helping be the cheerleader, taking the role of being able to be the, the pragmatist sometimes in asking some more questions, mm -hmm. but not being the decision maker on everything. I mean, that is a tremendous shift. Uh, that a lot of entrepreneurs who like building things often can't get out of the way and let them grow. And that seems like the lesson that you're, you're living right now is, is how to. Yeah. And trying to force myself through some other lenses. Like, like if I'm going to run the business the way that I'd like to run the business in the future, I still need to speak. If I'm going to live the lifestyle, the way I'd like to be able to live, speaking is always going to be a part of that, but I don't love the travel. Mm -hmm. So it starts to say, well, what do I need to learn that I don't yet know that might mean that flying on my terms becomes more available as an option? Mm -hmm. So what does private look like? Well, hang on. If you're to fly private, you're either doing it because you have Taylor Swift money and that you, you know, it's, it's small change, whatever way you look at it, or you have to make it commercially make sense to be able to do so. Mm -hmm. So you're traveling with your team or that your time is so valuable within your workplace that actually getting back at the times that you need to more than pays for the expense of being able to travel in that way or mm -hmm. learning how to work around tax strategy and investment in a way that, so I, I just like giving myself new puzzles. And I have a yeah. very simple belief, Robbie, that is if somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? Mm -hmm. And that is a question that I ask myself regularly. And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is no, 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 that can't be me because, 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 because. And that makes me a piece of that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm okay that that's not where I'm going to go. As we're wrapping this up, I, I'm, we were about to jump into our final question. Um, but before we do, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. All right, my favorite wrap-up question here, Phil. And sorry to cut you off there a moment ago. Um, but I feel like we could talk for the next three hours. I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> I mean, they're so interesting. I love getting a chance to interview people that I, I, I know, but not well. And it's a way for me to really dig in. There's so much about your history I really didn't know a lot about. And as you're thinking about the future and we're, you know, let's say we connect again in next year's uh, NSA influence event. And I'm saying, oh, it's been about a year since we had this interview. What are we going to be celebrating for your business and your life a year from now? What are you most looking forward to a year from now? Um, my ambition for what we're celebrating is to be in a chapter of order. When businesses are growing, you have chaos and then order and then chaos and then order and then chaos and then order, right? Like these are the phases we go through. Right now, we're in a period of chaos. And it's elected chaos. I mean, we chose to be here. What I hope we are in a year's time is organized, less chaotically, having simplified and systemized many of the initiatives that are currently in play. Mm -hmm. I would add a you know, tiny caveat, like we're 2.7 something million copies of exactly what to say sold. Mm 
it'd be nice if we're at 3 million plus at influence that'll be a nice milestone so if we're looking at a very practical milestone mm -hmm. is ewts being at 3 million plus copies and being able to do a new print run with over 3 million copies sold would be a would be a fun milestone that we can high five to influence i mean i can't wait to celebrate all of that with you and looking back on your first independently published book and you being a bestseller, you know, because you did a little Amazon category. I've actually used your book as the example of why we all should not use the term bestseller because that's a bestseller. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I can claim that I hit number one in X number of categories, you know, like that's a truth statement, but I'm not going to use the term bestseller because that should mean something. And you've achieved that remarkably well. And I'm so grateful because your work is helping so many people internationally and globally. Um, how can people find you and follow your work? What are the best ways? I'm pretty easy to find on your favorite platform. If you just um, go to search engine, fill space M space Jones, use the M. Otherwise you're going to maybe find a ex Manchester United soccer player that seems to outrank me on Google in a number of ways for Phil Jones. But um, favorite place to continue the conversation is probably Instagram. And I'm at Phil M Jones UK. So if you've enjoyed the conversation here with Robbie today, or if something sparked your interest that you'd like to learn more about, or that you'd just like to be able to pass comment on, love to be able to hear from you. Love to be able to continue the conversation there. That's at Phil M. Jones UK. We are going to put all the links in the show notes at onthechmoose.com. Thank you, Phil, so much for this conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Robbie. You're awesome. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Phil. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 357. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.